Happy Saturday. It is May 21st, 2022, and you are listening to Morning Meeting. I'm Ashley Baker. And I'm Michael Haney. And we are two of your deputy editors here at Airmail. Ashley, I feel like you have something you want to tell me. We need to talk. Okay, the reason that I'm late to our recording session is because I was walking back from the vet, and guess what happened? That's right, a pigeon relieved himself on my head. That is very good luck, Michael. That means we're about to have the best show of all time. All right. Yeah. You're ever ever the optimist. That's us, right? Look, I'm in a New York state of mind right now. When something like that happens in the city and you actually feel good about life, like you know it is spring in New York. We have a great issue of airmail, a lot to discuss, a lot of scandal. Where shall we begin? I have an idea. It comes courtesy of George Kalidrakis in this week's issue, and it is his story in the diary about Vogue picking a bar fight and losing. Now, I'm sure you're wondering, what what do you mean, Mike, right? So strange. What do you mean? Well, I'm talking about Vogue, the little hamlet in Cornwall, where if you go, you will find a 200-year-old inn called the Star Inn at Vogue. Now, recently, the owner there, a nice man named Mark Graham, got a letter from Condé Nast, which is the corporate overlord of Vogue magazine, threatening him and telling him that basically he did not have the right to use the name Vogue because Vogue magazine, founded in 1916, had that right, and that it might confuse people if they saw a pub or an inn with the name Vogue on it. Now, Graham just decided to ignore the letter and crack on, as he said. And lo and behold, there was a sufficient local uproar. And Condé Nast does what some people think it does best, which is back off, admitting to Graham that, oh, you are quite correct to note that further research by our team would have identified that we did not need to send such a letter. So just goes to show you, I don't know what they're paying their legal and research teams for, but not to sue the star in Ed Vogue and Cornish. Okay, look, if you really believe that there's going to be some sense of brand confusion between your world-famous magazine and some random pub in England, you have bigger problems than this lawsuit. Like, it's time to make your magazine a little bit more special. I agree with you. But speaking of lawsuits and entertaining ones at that, I know you're very excited about a story Stu Heritage has this week. Okay, we've got a case of two members of a certain type of of society in the United Kingdom. They're called the WAGs. That stands for Wives and Girlfriends of Football Players. And they are their own special class of uh, high society or some type of society, not entirely unlike the Real Housewives franchise here in the U.S. People love to love them. They love to hate them. And above all, they love to watch them. Okay, so one of these wives and girlfriends is accusing another one of these wives and girlfriends of stealing personal bits of information from her private Instagram account and leaking it to the press. I don't even remember the names of these people or who they are or who they're married to, but I just love like... Oh, come on. I'll tell you. Colleen Rooney, who's the wife of Wayne Rooney, the former captain of the English football team. And then there's Rebecca Vardy, who is the girlfriend of Jamie Vardy, who is a prolific scorer and and is part of the uh, England inner circle now. But last week, as you said, the whole sorry mess finally made it to London's high court, right? Yes, indeed. And they're duking it out in a court of law. What's the outcome, Michael? Do we really care? Well, as Stu said, you know, it's lot, and you just alluded to this, there's a lot of problems in the world right now, but he says, you know, the preceding trial has been in turn riotous, dramatic, hilarious, and blisteringly profane. And are there more important matters in the world right now? Absolutely. But as he reminds us that it's at its core an argument about nothing between two talented Jason figures whose lives appear to be so simultaneously opulent and empty that they have to fill it up with schoolyard gossip. But he says, right now, it's 
the thing that's really entertaining the UK more than anything. In fact, as he says, there's the BBC has already produced an 11-part and counting podcast series about it. I can sort of understand that, but what I can't understand is Kratom, the new drug that all the kids are taking and it's legal. I don't know what it is, but Jensen Davis, one of our associate editors here at Aramail, certainly does. She wrote this story and she is going to tell us all about the hottest drug in town. Okay, Jensen, we read your story. We're still scratching our heads. Tell us exactly what we're missing. So um, Kratom is a drug. It's like, it's new in that more people who are like Gen Z are taking it, but it's been around for, you know, centuries. But there are bars popping up all over New York and LA that serve it. And it's kind of like, one guy described it to me as the coffee version of opiates. Okay, so what exactly is it? Like, what's the substance consist of? Kratom is an herb. It comes from Southeast Asia. And more often, people drink it as like it's powdered. So people mix it with hot water and sort of drink it like it's tea or coffee. Okay. And what does it taste like? It tastes really terrible. It's like undrinkable if you just have the kratom powder and the water. One of my friends like mixes it with milk and drinks it like I guess like it's chocolate milk, but it gets you high. But at Kratom bars, they offer it with like juice and agave and honey. What's the sensation? What do you feel like when you're on Kratom? A lot of friends and a lot of people I interviewed for the article have compared it to a very mild opiate. So like when people do prescription painkillers, they get itchy. And so you sort of get a mild version of that itchiness if you take enough Kratom. People also get like euphoric. They just feel really happy. A lot of people compared it to taking Percocet or any other, you know, pharmaceutical painkiller. Jensen, you also, I mean, one of the points you make in the piece is the quote unquote versatility of it, which is like, it's an upper, it's a downer. But he said to some, some people of your generation are also using it almost as like Adderall, one person says, right? I mean, or one person said he drinks it before going to the gym so he can, quote unquote, get harder before lifting weights. So it seems to work in different ways with different um, strengths or, or, or dosages, right? Yeah. So in smaller doses, it has more of like the Adderall stimulant effect. And it also depends on the color of Kratom you drink. So like weed has strains. The Kratom equivalent is the color. So there's red, green, yellow, white, and people swear by, you know, their chosen colors. So that affects how it feels a little bit. But also if you drink less of it, 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 it does kind of work like Adderall. And a lot of the people I talked to mentioned being skeptical of pharmaceuticals now and wanting to get away from, you know, those like name brand, like those drugs from like name brands, like companies and like, you know, Kratom feeling like a more natural alternative to those. So it's totally unregulated. Nobody really knows exactly how it works. And people are more comfortable taking that than like a Percocet. Yeah, that's what I think every single person I interviewed told me. Sensible. Do we know anything about the like long-term effects, the health consequences, like the badness of this? Let's just point out it is addictive. Yeah, it's definitely addictive. Everybody I talk to knows somebody who's at the very least dependent on it. <laughs> Spoken like a real marketer. I mean, I did talk to the, the woman who does PR at a Kratom company, so I picked up a few tips. It's gone under the FDA's radar for decades in the United States. And so there's like not 
a lot of scientific studies on it in the U.S. or as far as I know, anywhere, long-term kratom use could cause anything. Nobody really knows. To put a finer point on it, as you mentioned in your story, the opinion does seem to run all over the place. Even a number of countries such as Japan and Denmark and Finland, Australia, it's illegal. Okay, so so Jensen, you're, you're very, not too far removed from your college years, right? I go back for my college graduation in a week. Okay, which was uh, delayed by the, the, the pandemic. Yes. Was Kratom something that was happening on campus or is it something that you discovered more just coming to in, in, in New York and L.A.? So I first heard about Kratom when I was 18. That's six years ago. I heard about it when I was in Amsterdam, I think, and I just like saw it in a coffee shop. Not like a coffee shop in quotes, weed store, but a literal coffee shop. And then I hadn't really heard about it much. I didn't see it at all in college, but friends that were living in LA or New York were taking it. And I, since the pandemic, so it's, I've heard so many more people talk about it. Not to sound excessively old. Okay. But you talk a lot about drugs in this, you know, the competitive set of Kratom, if you will. It's like, where do you think it falls on the scale of acceptability when it's compared to things like Molly and ketamine? Like, is this like a life supplement that a lot of people use daily, kind of like marijuana, or is this more of a special occasion situation? It's definitely more of a marijuana usage than a you know, going out to a night to party, taking Molly every few months. A lot of the people I talk to that take it, take it every single day, multiple times a day, like it's a cup of coffee. Yeah, as you, I mean, you you, you write in the story, a generation of people for who have been fed pharmaceuticals, it's their chemically induced equivalent of sobriety. So it's almost like, it sounds like you're saying it's, it's kind of like the edible um, weed or the, um, you know, the little gummy weed or something, right? Yeah. And I think a lot of people around my age are talk, talk a lot about like maybe wanting to try sobriety, especially because I don't know when I was in college, like, you know, everyone, mostly everyone was like taking stuff like Adderall. But I think that, you know, this is a nice compromise or it seems like a a nice compromise for people who want to quit certain stuff but don't necessarily want to be fully sober how does your generation and and jensen how do the people you spoke with view alcohol how does that compare like is alcohol more taboo than kratom i don't think it's more taboo but i don't know i didn't really sense any taboo about kratom at all because either people know about it and are like oh it's so mild or people have never heard of it and don't even know it exists enough to have like an opinion of it. But I think there is, you know, more and more people I've noticed trying to, you know, cut back on alcohol or saying they only want to drink like one night a week, um, just trying to like rein specifically alcohol in. Do you feel like you're talking to your parents on an episode of Euphoria? You can say yes. A little bit, a little bit. (laughs) That's all right, Michael. It's ignorance is bliss. Jensen, should we try this? Are you recommending that we go out and give it a shot as soon as we finish recording this podcast? I'm not going to tell anyone listening to go out and do drugs, but I'm also not going to tell them not to. If it sounds appealing, you can go to Kava Kava Bar in Williamsburg. It's around the corner from my favorite pizza in New York. Which is? Now, now we're on a subject we know something about. I'm going to butcher pronouncing it, but Lindustry. It's like the, it's a, it's a New York slice shop style pizza. I'm new to the New York pizza world, so. All right, got it. Thank you. I'm getting the different types down. One to try. Yeah, they recommend you eat before you drink Kratom, so 
it's it's a nice it's nice that that's right next door. All right, Michael, we've got our date night planned: pizza and kratom. Does it give you the munchies? Is what you're saying, or it just needs it's just gonna make you feel nauseous? No, it just makes you feel super nauseous in general, especially if you drink it on an empty stomach. Awesome. Sounds like a blast. Great. <laughs> We're there. All right. Thank you for keeping us au courant on subjects that we generally don't want to know about. It is still very important. All about Kratom right here in Airmail. Thank you so much. Have a great day. You too. Bye, Jensen. All right. Well, that was informative and illuminating. Michael, once again, it's cool to be old. <laughs> Once again, it's cool to be old and get pigeon poop on your head, okay? Yeah, when that's the most exciting thing that's happening in my day, like, that's a good sign. Good moment. You kids down in Williamsburg bars drinking your Kratom drinks and flipping and tripping, hey, Ashley's got pigeon poop on her head, okay? Bring it on. Bring it on. Dude, Michael, look, like, I I lived through the Four loco phase in New York and lived to tell the tale, okay? To me, Kratom is just the new Four loco, like a really bad idea disguised as a trend. Guys, been there, done that. It didn't end well. We're just going to give you a piece of advice. Skip the Kratom. Skip the Kratom. That's your t-shirt. Oh, Michael, one thing you should not skip this week. I wrote about, it's a tiny little thing in the issue, but it's really worthwhile. I went to a great new restaurant called Oji Mi. It's in the Flatiron District. It's a fabulous new Korean restaurant, fine dining temple. Okay, anyway, take us to our next story, Michael, please. Take us out of Kratom land. Yeah, for loco sounds or Kratom, uh, it also sounds like something that could have appeared on the desks of the Essex Boys. Now, do you know about the Essex Boys? I didn't until this week. Okay, Neither did I. Now, the Essex Boys, they're very well known in the UK. They are a group of commodity traders. They're the so-called Essex Boys, and they're from it's a region of the UK, a town in, in, in England where they're from, kind of more middle class than anything else. And this, they were speculators, some age in their 20s, one who was actually a teenager at the time. And they made an estimated $700 million in one afternoon while working from their homes in April of 2020 when they bet on the price of crude oil to plunge. And uh, in the last two years, they have gone on to enjoy a very high-rolling lifestyle, uh, their newfound riches. It, it looks, it's one of those I can, can't imagine it's not already been optioned and in development somewhere because also, of course, now the sort of authorities want to review all their paperwork. All right. Speaking of culinary developments, well, it seems like everyone's getting COVID these days, and including Rene Redzepi, the proprietor of Noma in Copenhagen, was supposed to be here in New York with us this week for a five-night exclusive dinner experience for American Express cardholders that was produced in collaboration with Resi. That was a mouthful. But instead, he was stuck in Copenhagen with COVID. Rene, we miss you. But fortunately, one of our colleagues, Dana Brown, writer, reporter, editor, and also the author of a fabulous new book that we've talked about a lot on Morning Meeting, which is called Dilettante. Dana was able to go to Noma and he's here to tell us all about it. Welcome to our favorite dilettante, Dana Brown. Okay. Well, you know, some of us eat frozen takeout from Trader Joe's, not naming names. Others of us go to Noma for dinner and thank God we've got someone here who went to the latter. The one, the only Dana Brown, author of Dilettante, our favorite book of the past six months, maybe year, Aww. is here to tell us all about what happens when the team of Rene Redzepi and Copenhagen comes to Brooklyn. Welcome, Dana. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me back again. Was I on more than once? I don't know. Whatever. It's early. I was up late. We'll take you as often as we can get you. Okay. So first of all, tell us what exactly is Noma and why did it come to New York? Okay. Noma. 
I mean, Noma is arguably the quote-unquote best restaurant in the world. I'm literally putting it in quotes because I think it is. I think it's been voted that pretty consistently. Maybe over the last decade or so, I know, you know, everyone was obsessed with El Bulli for, in Spain for so long. And, and then when that closed in 2011, it's sort of gone back and forth between Noma and Massimo Batura's restaurant in Modena in Italy. But Noma is sort of the the thing right now, and it's it's the best restaurant in the world. Um, it's in Copenhagen. It is it is modern Danish food, modern Viking food. I don't know something 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 modern and something Danish, and has been called a lot of things. And they occasionally sort of, as Vikings do, they they get in their ship and they they plunder foreign territory. And so they've arrived in New York. I think by the time people hear this, they will be gone. They came to New York for a five-night pop-up beginning earlier this week, and I was lucky enough to go on Tuesday night. And was it everything you expected and more? It wasn't what I expected, actually. I love restaurants. I hate food pretension, and I hate pretentious restaurants. And I went in thinking that this was going to be a sort of silly exercise in in pretension. I was sure the food was going to be good. You know, it, it, it is the best restaurant in the world. But I was surprised at how sort of unpretentious and how kind of lovely and scandy the whole experience was, actually. So, well, let's get it by the numbers, though, right? It's Noma. $700, nine courses, three hours, right? But Renee wasn't able to make it, right, Dana? Because he, well, what happened with Renee? Well, so we were kind of pulled aside at, at the beginning of the meal as we walked in and said, you know, unfortunately, we have some bad news. Renee has come down with an uh, unfortunately timed case of COVID. So Renee is in quarantine in Copenhagen. So we, we saw a sort of sad video of Renee alone in a little little white room in Copenhagen, apologizing for not being able to make it. He he sent in his place a, a chef who I believe it was a, a, had worked in the kitchen for 15 years. He assured us we were in very good hands. But it was kind of a bummer. I mean, not, not just for us, you know, to be in the presence of, of greatness in the food world and, and someone who has himself become sort of a cult figure. But, you know, I felt really badly for him because he, he, he really sounded kind of pained that he wasn't able to come to New York. I'll tell you what, though, the experience was wonderful. It was wonderful. And like I was saying before, you know, I hate food pretension. I was expecting food pretension. And there really wasn't any. In a restaurant, you sort of want great food. You want them to give you your food. You want them to tell you what the food is. And then you want them to walk away and not get sort of like overly in the weeds about the food and to discuss the food. And there really was none of that, which was nice. I mean, there were really, really lovely, lovely Danish people honestly. And I, I, I didn't know what to expect, but I think I was expecting like, like uber pretentious, you know, Mike, you've been to those, you've been to those restaurants where it's like, you know, they bring you the, they bring you the plate with like the big, the big um, glass thing on top with the smoke in it. And they explain where the smoke came from and that the, the, the cow that was underneath there was like a, you know, bread from a 14th century Herefordshire, blah, 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 blah. I call it bacon on a swing. I once was at a restaurant, I'm not going to name it. And they came out with like course 16 out of 25. And he's like, a little piece of bacon suspended on a tiny swing over a little match. It's like, and this is bacon on a swing. Yeah. And then, of course, they just stand there and almost, do I applaud now? Or what What do I do? And it's like, I just want to eat and get home. Yeah. So, you know, but you, okay, so you had nine courses. Nine courses, yeah. Um, and as you said, they don't really sort of describe, over-describe it. 
which leads to your dining companion missing a key bit of... (laughs) Yes. Okay. So Noma sort of made a name for itself and it sounds kind of gimmicky and it probably was kind of gimmicky. They serve things like foraging is a big part of their dining aesthetic. I think when they first opened, they got a lot of attention for serving moss on a menu once. Cricket paste, I think, was another thing that they'd used. And they use ants in food a lot. And we were served, it was really thinly sliced cauliflower, kind of like a little tartlet, uh, or I think they called it a tostada. And at the end of describing what it was, they said, and ants. And if you looked very closely, you would just see that this thing was studded with ants. But if you didn't look closely, it was a dimly lit room, but if you didn't look closely, you know, it might have looked like pieces of an herb or something. And so... I was dining with someone who was quite hungry, and it was one of the first things we got. It was, it was kind of a past hors d'oeuvre as, as we arrived, and she ate two of these tostadas. And I said, how are the ants? And she said, what ants? And I said, you just ate a pile of ants on this tostada. And I just fell into hysterics. And I don't know what the ants added to the dish flavor-wise, but it sure made me chuckle. And and that was worth it for me. Okay, Dana, my invite obviously was lost in the mail, but who did you take with you on this experience and how did he or she feel about it? I took my special lady friend to this event. I think she was very excited. I think she'd actually been in Copenhagen a few years ago and was supposed to eat there and something went wrong and, and she wasn't able to. I think she was similarly blown away by the level and the sort of finesse of the cooking. I remember growing up, my father said to me, whenever you eat at a great restaurant, always order the fish because it's the hardest thing to cook and the hardest thing to cook with. And that's how you can judge a restaurant is how fish is cooked. And this was mostly a seafood-based meal. You know, she was as blown away as I was. The sort of finale, I think course eight before dessert was a Maine lobster. And Maine lobster is, you know, as American as you get. Something we've, we've unless you have a shellfish allergy, have all been eating for many years, whether it's a summer in Maine or a, a lobster roll out in the Hamptons. I discovered after my first bite of this lobster that I don't think I'd ever eaten properly cooked lobster before. It was such a different texture and experience to, to what I'm used to that, to that sort of crunchiness of lobster tail that you get that you get most of the time. I was really sort of blown away. It was like almost unfamiliar. And I don't know if it was poached. And so I don't know how he did it uh, or, or how they did it. But it was such an incredible experience. Like both of us bit into this lobster and we were like, this is lobster? What? What in the world is this? And, I, and again, I don't know how they cooked it, but I was kind of disappointed suddenly that that for my whole life I've been eating poorly cooked lobster, and this was such a sort of singularly wonderful experience. I was like, "What is this? And how do we do this again?" And, and I'm I'm afraid, and I think both of us were like, "We're probably never going to have lobster this well cooked and this perfect ever again," which made me a little sad. You're going to have to book those tickets to Copenhagen. I know, but I don't even know if they have American lobster on the menu. You know what I mean? Yeah, good point. The Viking only found it here. The Vikings plundered our lobster um, and served it, and I don't know if it'll be returning to Denmark with them. Again, back to the fish thing. Like, fish is really, you know, I cook a lot, and fish is really hard to cook. Fish is really hard to cook for a room full of, you know, whether I think it was a couple hundred people all eating the same the same course at the same time. That's a lot of fish to cook very well. And that was really impressive, the sort of machinery that was was able to pull that off. To talk about restaurants with tasting menus, and these are high-end problems, 
Sometimes I dread them because you go to them and it's a little bit like the scene from Monty Python's The Meaning of Life, right? Just one itty bitty more little wafer here, right? And you just cry. You, you want to tap out, right? Yes. Did you come away feeling stuffed or did you come away feeling like this was great? You know what? I suspected that I would walk out of there either stuffed or finding like the closest pizza place. Because I've been to those meals too, like you were said with the bacon on a swing, you know, where you will get, you know, course six and it's like three peas on a piece of celery with a dab of like truffle oil. It was, it was right in the middle. It was actually, it, it was surprisingly the perfect amount of food. Nothing was, nothing was massive and, and nothing was like absurdly tiny portions were were pretty well suited so I, I was I was surprised Mike listen I have the same response to sort of pretension and silliness in restaurants and food that you have and I was totally expecting that I was taught you know bake it on the swing it's such a great line I got to remember that I'm gonna steal it from you and take credit for it but like that's what I was expecting I was expecting bacon on a swing and instead I got like you know I got actually a sizable decent portion of good bacon and it wasn't on a swing and you got lobster come on got lobster oh Thank you for dealing with this horrible assignment. It just sounds like you really had to endure a lot and really grateful. Yes, it was very, very difficult. I've earned my stripes on this one, Ashley. All right. Well, next time we're going to have to send you to Le Bernadette. So just soldier yourself up for it. It's going to be another tough night. Oh, Christ. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I'll, uh, I'll think about it. Um, thank you, guys. Thank you for having me on again. Thanks for being Surprised here. Surprised you had me on again, but uh, thank you. You know, it's funny, Michael, I assigned that story, and yet Dana did not invite me to go with him. He probably had better plans. Dana, I'll remember that. Mm, stings to be the editor, you know. They just expect you to be the house cat lounging around, and then the alley cats get to go out and have all the fun. Yes, indeed. But, you know, we're happiest behind the scenes. Okay, Michael, the weekend beckons, but surely you've got something you can recommend to us. I do. It's coming to its closing days. It's here in New York City. It's at the Brooklyn Academy of Music. It is, I had the pleasure of seeing recently this week, James McAvoy in a revival, a reworking actually of Cyrano de Bergerac. This was a play that uh, first came on the stage in London, was supposed to open up here before pandemic, that obviously derail it, but it came and it's here for a few more days. If you get a chance to go see it, and I'd recommend maybe even stand in line for uh, tickets that pop up. Uh, there were a couple of people I know got t- tickets at the last moment, but the central story is still there, of course. It involves Roxanne falling in love with Christian and then relying on the poetry of Cyrano, but it's been entirely reworked to set it up. One part of it's still sort of in 1640 France, the other part is in modern day France, and it's all been done in a new edition of rhyme, uh, money bit informed by rap, and it's simply electrifying. McAvoy is sort of unbelievable to watch. It's just sort of like he's on stage for what feels like no time at all, but in fact, it's more than two and a half hours, and he's just astonishing. And so I would recommend, if you can see it, it's fantastic. And you, my dear? Fabulous. All right. Well, this is, I can't really take credit for this. It was a, it was a recommendation from Graydon to me, and I've watched the first three or four episodes and I can't get enough. It's called The Offer and it's a new biographical drama on Paramount Plus. And it's all about the development and production of The Godfather, one of our favorite movies of all time, directed by Francis Ford Coppola. Um, And it 
takes us all the way back to the early 70s in Los Angeles. And we've got Miles Teller starring as Albert S. Ruddy, who ultimately ended up as the producer of Godfather. And you've also got Bob Evans, who at the time was the head of Paramount. And he is played by Matthew Good, and he's extraordinary. And it, it's so funny because it's kind of like there's a lot of meta-ness happening in this because it's a, on Paramount+. Plus. It's a miniseries about the machinations of Paramount, the studio, and you just have all these incredible actors playing legends of Hollywood. Giovanni Ribisi plays Joe Colombo. You've got Juno Temple, Colin Hanks, uh, Dan Fogler as Francis Ford Coppola. So it's a really incredible... It, first of all, it's stylistically so beautiful. It reminds me of Mad Men in the way that it creates this universe, especially of Los Angeles and in these corporate environments. It's really well done. Uh, so I highly recommend it. The Offer on Paramount+. Plus. All right, Michael, on that note, wishing you all a happy weekend. Thank you so much for joining us. And Michael, please read us out. Morning Meeting is produced by Airplay Productions and edited by Jesse Cannon. Our co-editors are Graydon Carter and Alessandra Stanley. Our chief operating officer is Bill Keenan, and our deputy editors are Ashley Baker, Chris Garrett, Nathan King, and Julie Vitale. Our CMO is Emily Davis, and our music supervisor is Randall Poster. Our theme music is The Cute Monster by the Buddy Colette Quintet. A new edition of Airmail is published every Saturday, so please subscribe and enjoy all of our stories on airmail.news, which we update every day. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Airmail Weekly. We'll be back here next Saturday with another edition. In the meantime, be sure to subscribe at Spotify or Apple Music. Most of all, thank you again for joining us.